Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Today, I speak with four parents about their decisions to return their children to in-person learning in public schools. You'll hear from Joe Promley, a wedding and lifestyle photographer and flu shot vaccine advocate. Lauren Dobson-Hughes, a consultant specializing in gender, health, and rights. Regina Bateson, a political scientist and visiting professor at the University of Ottawa. And Mike Moffat, an assistant professor in the Business Economics and Public Policy Group at Ivy Business School, Western University, and the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute. Risk is all of our business, but some decisions really bring it home, and sirens get set off in our heads when it involves kids. Please listen to how these parents carried out their risk decision-making responsibilities during a September unlike any other. Thank you for joining me, Jill. Thank you so much for having me today. So please tell us about your family. How many school-aged children do you have? So uh, I have two living school-aged children. Uh, My daughter, Isla, is in grade five. She started this year. And my son, Thomas, is in grade one. Very good. So two living children. Can you share with us why why it's only two living? So Thomas is a twin. Uh, and four years ago, uh, when Isla was in kindergarten, there was a flu outbreak that swept through her kindergarten class. And um, it was late in the year. It was, uh, I guess, April when it started. And um, on uh, on a Monday in the first week of May, we, uh, she developed a fever. And uh, that was the first that we heard that there had been any illness in the classroom. Um, and um, so she, you know, she was fine. And for her, it was just a, a very mild thing. But we learned that some of the kids had been quite sick, some out for weeks, others uh, hospitalized. Um, she was better in less than 24 hours. But later that week, uh, my son Jude, Thomas's twin, he woke up with the low-grade fever. And having already seen it in Isla, we weren't too concerned because we thought, okay, well, you know, she was better quickly, she'll be fine. And he was really himself. He, you know, he was playing, he was laughing. Um, he was singing as the boys went down for their afternoon nap. And um, that afternoon when I went to wake them to go get Isla from the school bus, uh, Thomas was awake and laughing and Jude wasn't. And this was very unusual because usually when you have two little boys sleeping in the same room, if one wakes up, he immediately wakes up the other. And um, I was surprised. And then when I went to wake him, I could see very quickly that he wasn't okay. And he actually died that day during his afternoon nap uh, from influenza B causing cardiac arrest. Oh, Jill, it's so heartbreaking. This must be such a difficult time for you. And what a tough decision for you around whether to send your kids to school right now during the pandemic. It's been, um, you know, I understand that this is um, is hard for everyone. I don't think anyone's having an easy time with it. There are so many decisions we have to make uh, every single day. Everything is different right now. Um, And I, I feel that going through this, our position, I don't know, our family is relatively fortunate because we are in a position where, you know, I work from home and my husband is able to work from home. So for most of this, we've been able to really be hermits and just stay home and and be safe through this. But it is really strange to live through a pandemic, having already lost so much to infectious disease. And um, all through these months, I felt pretty okay um, about our, our own safety through it. But 
I was constantly concerned about September and worried that uh, I wasn't seeing enough done to prepare for September to make sure that we would have a safe return to schools. And I knew that that would be important because, um, well, we would be in a position where we'd be able to make a decision about whether or not to send our kids back. A lot of families in this province do not have that choice. There are households where there's only one parent or there are a lot of households where both parents work outside the house and people don't have the option to stay home um, and, uh, and take charge of their children's education or, um, or just to not be at work. So um, I've, I've been pretty concerned throughout, throughout these months about what September would look like. Now, did you send your kids to school? We did. <laughs> and um, it was an impossible decision right until the very last minute where we had to, uh, you know, give the school board our, our choice. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's <laughs> even like every day we're still just like, did we, did we make the right choice? And, um, but we knew looking at the two options that were provided to us, it was either send them back or keep them home for virtual learning. And having seen how the spring went for both of them, and knowing how they both learn and how much they thrive at school, how important it is to them to be able to see their friends and, and to be in that environment, um, we knew that there was a lot that we wouldn't be able to provide for them here that they get at school. And we also knew that for both of them, um, sitting at a screen for four hours and, and expecting them to really absorb what they needed to absorb from lessons, uh, that it wasn't going to work, um, unfortunately. And, and we wish that that could have been a better option for them. But um, we're, yeah, we're, we're realistic about what, uh, what works for them. And um, so we did decide to send them, um, but also knew at the same time that if things got to a point where we felt really concerned that we would just keep them home and then figure out what the consequences would be of that going forward. So what what would have made this decision easier? Could anything have made this decision easier for you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, if our province had better prioritized uh, controlling community transmission, um, and that's something that we just did not do a good enough job of towards the end of the summer. We were doing great in this province. I actually think, um, you know, Ontarians did a remarkable job pulling together apart, um, finding ways to uh, adjust our routines, our habits, and, and even during those months that are supposed to be so much fun, and there's usually so much togetherness. Um, but we were really doing a good job getting uh, our case rates under control. And even here in Peel, where things have now really gotten out of hand, um, in Mississauga, we were down to single-digit case numbers or zero some days. And um, we we were really doing a great job with it. But then, you know, something shifted, and it, it seemed like instead of prioritizing public health, we were worried more about um, our wants than our needs. And we have seen our numbers now turn in the other direction and the trajectory has gone the other way. And we're not doing anything now to get those back under control. There's no meaningful action. So um, I think I would have felt, I I know I would have felt a lot better if we'd done more to better get that in check. Um, Because then we wouldn't have to worry so much about how, how great our chance is of there being um, a case in our kids' classrooms or or just in our community in general. Um, and uh, and the class sizes is a huge issue. <laughs> I just, I can't believe to this moment that that was such a huge fight and they still just decided not to take any action there. Um, to me, it's just, it's a no-brainer. We know what worked. We did it all through those initial months through this pandemic where um, we know that physical distancing and reducing our number of close regular contacts uh, makes a huge difference in the spread of this disease. 
And instead of making sure that we're doing that in schools, like we do every single other place, like you can go to the LCBO and they have a limited number of people who can be in there. Um, and it's a stricter regulation to go and buy wine than it is to send our kids to school for 30 hours a week in a, in a small classroom with no real ventilation in many of these schools. Um, so to me, if they had made a point of making that a priority, it would have made a huge difference. I mean, there, there's no reason that we shouldn't have made that happen. Thanks so much, Jill. Is there anything else you, you'd like to add? Yeah, I think there is something that we're still not talking enough about, and it's sick days. Um, and it's frustrating because I feel like I've been banging this drum for the last, uh, well, for years now. Um, we have not enabled people to do what they're being asked. So at this point, they're asking uh, parents to keep their kids home, even if they have mild symptoms. And so we're talking about runny noses, um, you know, a, a mild cough, just, you know, any mild symptom that could be something that's a cold or, um, you know, anything that maybe could be a COVID symptom. And um, most parents in this province can't do that. Uh, you know, there are, there are people who have a more generous sick day policy from their employers, but a lot of people, if they don't go to work, that means they don't get paid. Um, so that could mean that if they are missing a day or if they're missing the 14 days that they might be asked to isolate to stay home with their kids, uh, if they can't get a test for their children, we can see that the testing capacity is not working right now. Um, they're not they're not going to be able to feed their kids or maybe pay rent. Or for a lot of people, it might mean that they lose their job. Um, and then there are people who just simply can't do their jobs from home. So we need to see, we need to actually see real policy on the provincial side to make sure that people have that flexibility to be able to stay home when their kids are sick. And um, seeing the movement from the federal government was incredible um, because this is something that, you know, while it typically falls under the provincial jurisdiction, um, it's a problem that affects people across this country. And uh, we've done a lot of work reviewing sick day policies in each province and territory, and it varies by region, um, but there's nowhere that's white enough, even in a normal year, and there's nowhere that has uh, enough to get people through a pandemic. Um, like I know people already who are trying to figure out how they're going to get through the rest of September because they are already having to keep their sick kids home and they, they can't figure out how to do it. Um, so the 10 days from the federal government is a huge, fantastic start. Um, but here in Ontario, uh, Bill 47 changed the sick day policy for workers. And so because they've designated the remaining unpaid days, people actually only have a guaranteed uh, three unpaid personal illness days and three unpaid uh, family responsibilities, uh, family responsibility days, plus two for bereavement, but they can be required to give sick notes for those. So that's six days that most families, if they've got kids in school, have probably already used, uh, especially because we had a more serious flu season last year. So now when we're looking at what's happening uh, this fall, when people are being asked to take, you know, take five days this week, maybe another five next week, however long it's going to be, they're in a lot of trouble. So what I would really love to see this government do is recognize that there are a lot of people who can't afford to do what they're being asked to do and find a way to enable them to stay home because otherwise we will continue to have sick people at work and sick kids in the classroom because too many people don't have a choice. And that's how we get, that's how we get so many sick kids at school. Jill, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your back to school risk journey. Thank you. No, I was really glad to be here to talk about it. And I'm, I'm glad that you tackled this topic. Thank you for joining me, Lauren. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Jody.
Please tell us about uh, your family and how many school-aged children you have. So I am a single parent of a seven-year-old girl, um, and we live together, and she is wonderful and sparky and funny um, and has been missing out on school. I, I bet she has. So what has the return been like? It's been relatively smooth, I think, for her, um, slotting back into a routine again. And while many things are different, many things still remain the same. The big pieces, her friends, her teacher, you know, the same school. Um, and, you know, they do say kids are remarkably resilient and flexible, and they are. Um, and in many cases, I think we adults impose our own fears on our kids and assume that they must share those. And often they have very different fears to what we do. Um, I think the, the nerves and the anxiety has all been on my side, which sounds, I think, familiar to most um, parents. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, so so what, what are some of your concerns and fears? I think initially my concern is when school was, it was clear, you know, there was the two week pause for school back in March and that feels like decades ago. Um, But then very quickly I became worried that it didn't appear that government's policymakers were thinking about what's going to happen next. And there was just this assumption that parents, mainly mothers, would be picking up the slack while the government dealt with the important things. And then that sort of panic and anxiety rose throughout the spring and then come summer and there were still no plans for what September looked like. And it felt a lot like people who should have been thinking about this had wasted the time that parents had given them at great sacrifice to their mental health, their children's mental health, education, sanity, careers, incomes, marriages um, that had been squandered. And then you saw a real rush at, you know, very late August, early September, particularly in Ontario, to cobble together hastily um, plans to come back. Um, So I think this cobbling together at the very end of of August, start of September, raised anxiety even further among parents and children. That was just a real lack of certainty about what was going on. You know, in healthcare, uh, we have a saying, and it's that the best discharge planning begins on the day that the patient arrives. And I sort of feel like we need a new Um, golden rule of public policy, which is if we close uh, any important public institution like schools, we have to start the planning to reopen them that same day. I think you're very right that this is what we entrust policymakers with. This is why, you know, in politicians' cases, you run for office and you put your name on the lawn sign. It's because we entrust you with thinking about these things in advance. And when you make one decision, you should immediately be thinking of the knock-on impacts of that decision down the line. Um, And it feels like that was distinctly not the case with schools leaving 
parents, kids, teachers, schools, even school boards to a certain extent in a very difficult position at the very end um, and in a high risk, high anxiety year anyway, having kids who didn't know who their teachers were the day of starting or I didn't know what time my school started the day of. That was never actually communicated. Um, and so having all these anxieties has, you know, has been very difficult and very frustrating and everybody wants to be patient and tolerant with teachers who are doing their best and people doing their best. And we all need to give each other a lot of bandwidth and care and kindness in these times. That being said, I have higher expectations of people who have decision-making roles. Um, and I'm, I've been disappointed to see a lot of the downloading both in the school context, but also in um, an individual in a health risk context as well, of policy and structural decisions down to individual behaviour. So taking what is actually a policy problem or a structural problem or a district-wide problem and making it a problem that individual people should be responsible for and solve, like it's a one-off. And putting a lot of pressure on the backs of parents to make up for or cobble together solutions individually to systemic or shared or policy problems. Um, so for example, the testing. So it was completely foreseeable that if a month ago, public health officials were saying kids need a negative COVID test to come back to school if they have any symptoms and those symptoms include a runny nose. I mean, parents at the time were like, how is that going to work? And sure enough, day one of school, you saw lineups for testing by parents who were fairly certain their kids didn't have COVID, but could not take 14 days out of work and income and school. And so the failure alone to see that and then blaming parents, like, why are you standing in line? This is ridiculous. I think the parents themselves agreed that they do not want to be spending 14 hours in a field, freezing cold with no access to washrooms, and a six-year-old with an iPad where the battery is draining very quick. And blaming parents, individual parents, like, you're ridiculous, why are you doing this? When it's a systemic policy failure of decision makers, both on the healthcare and education side, that has been really frustrating for me to see. I think in part what drove that blind spot was this, you know, sort of attempted kind of download to the school boards and individual schools to do um, the actual reopening planning, because it was such a, a such a such a mismatch between where the spending power really lies, and decision making, and also um, a mismatch in the sense of the reopening of the schools this September was unlike any other September. And it requires, you know, a level of data and understanding and insight that you just can't have at a school board level, in my view. It's just not fair to expect them to have that level of insight. Yeah. And having sat in on some of the school board meetings, um, that you're asking people who are volunteers at a school elected school board level 
um, to be making decisions well outside of their scope of expertise, capacity. You know, you have an entire fully funded staffed government at a provincial and even federal level of experts with money and resources and time and whose jobs this is to do this. And yeah, I feel like downloading it again onto school boards for this hodgepodge response to what is a province-wide and even nationwide problem um, has been deeply frustrating. It's led to, you know, parents can't assess risk very well. We don't assess risk very well as in general as people. Like, let's just be honest, the actual stats around risk play the only the tiniest, mildest part in how we actually assess risk. Um, but you're asking parents to assess risk when actually most of what the things parents would want to control in terms of that risk, class sizes, ventilation, teachers, number of kids, buses, you control none of those variables. And so parents are even further trapped by this delegation of responsibility, this offloading. I mean, I think downloading, yes, but it, it is offloading. It's shirking responsibility and then making it into individual parents' choice. A forced choice is not a choice. And it, for some parents, this has been the single most difficult decision they've ever had to make around their children. And... Yes, I know, you know, we consume too much US media and seeing scare stories down there where I would have made a very different decision about sending back to school had I been in the US, you know, plays a part. But at the back of your head, you know, as a parent, your sort of sole job, if you have one, if you distill your job as a parent down to the very base level, it's to keep your children alive and safe. And so, yeah, this, I found myself quite angry watching this downloading all the way from governments to volunteer school board officials to school board staff to in to teachers and head teachers who are not equipped at all and then down even further to parents and then when you're left with this impossible choice because you've controlled none of the variables it's then put down to, well, you've chosen to keep your kids at home and educate them at home, or you chose to send them to school. And like, th that for me makes me very angry because none of that is a choice. It was a deliberate shirking of responsibility by people who ran for office to make tough decisions and who have made none of those decisions in the last six months and now have left parents in an impossible situation. One thing we know about risk is that preparation and practice um, are the keys to minimizing risk, particularly in high risk situations where, where, where you sort of have, you know, so many variables to try and, and account for. Um, so, and, you know, when, when information is coming, you know, basically on the same day or not coming at all, uh, you know, the same day that school opens, that, that obviously belies not a lot of preparation and, you know, not, not, not a lot of, uh, practice, uh, around the whole, uh, reopening scenario, you know, and in healthcare setting, when you, when you re, when you open a new space or, uh, reopen a renovated space, before you put a live patient in there, um, you do you 
basically do a trial run of what the physical transfer will look like. And you occupy the space without real patients before uh, you would ever bring a, a live patient into the area. Yeah, you do a rehearsal for your wedding so that you know where to stand and you don't mess it up and you you identify all the holes where like oh wait hang on your mother's standing too close to this person oh wait and I should stand here and this looks really awkward if you do a rehearsal for your wedding the fact that we did not do any sort of rehearsal or planning or scenario mapping for our education like a legal right for swaths for children yeah it is stunning in every area and yet you know, we do know that there was pandemic preparedness that, you know, there have been plans within the Canadian government, WHO, like p folks who work in pandemic preparedness have been, and we learned, there were lessons learned after the SARS plan that they did a full lessons learned. And these gaps were in large part identified. And then we have done precisely nothing about them since. Um, and I think, that's part of the frustration that it is not because these gaps haven't existed because we didn't know about them because we couldn't have foreseen them because we didn't have the expertise it wasn't a lack of knowledge or foresight or it was that we just didn't do them we didn't prioritize them well i know you say we like the royal we yeah. the government did not particularly the ontario government and you're right like we should have started this as a, a identified gap back in late March. And, you know, kids know that if you leave your homework till 8 p.m. on the night before, it's going to be a mad scramble and it's going to be terrible. And that is what we managed to do with, with education. Lauren Dobson-Hughes, thanks so much for sharing uh, what I'm sure was a very difficult process for you in, in making uh, a tough decision to send your child back to school uh, amid such uh, unoptimal circumstances. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks. Gina, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, no problem. I'm happy to be here. So please tell us about your family. How many school-aged children do you have? Oh, I have a lot. So we have <laughs> twins who are four. Uh, they just turned four recently. So this fall, they're supposed to be entering JK. Uh, this is a fall I have been waiting for for four years. <laughs> um, so we're very excited about that. And then I also have an older son who is seven, and he's going into grade two. And did you decide to send them for in-person schooling? I did. I did. I mean, for us, um, for me personally, I actually felt like it was a pretty straightforward decision, um, especially because we had only recently moved uh, to Ottawa and in fact to Canada. And, um, you know, they had really just started meeting people before the pandemic happened. So for me, you know, I felt that uh, sort of for their social engagement and also um, kind of getting them launched into the educational system here, um, you know, I felt that it was important for them to go back. Um, and especially at those ages, I mean, I just didn't see any evidence that online school could be effective at all. <laughs> in fact, I've never seen any evidence since um, I started thinking about this that it is. So, um, 
you know, again, in the way that I tried to weigh the pros and the cons um, and the risks and the benefits, uh, we came down pretty solidly on the side of in-person school. Um, although I should add that, you know, we have not been happy with um, some of the decisions that the province has made. And I think that's part of what's hard about the situation is that um, some of the most effective steps that could be taken to minimize the risk associated with going back to school aren't really things that individual parents can do. Um, it would really have to be you know, government action and institutional action that we can't directly control right now. Um, so we do have some frustrations and you know, some hesitations uh, and some things that we wish were improved or better. Um, but overall, I'm pretty comfortable with the decision to send them in person. So what you know, more specifically would have made the decision, do you think, easier for you? Well, of course, more information. So I think that, um, you know, I should say that I'm a political scientist. So I'm a social scientist by training. And that does affect the way I think about um, data and evidence and decision making, you know, but it's hard to make evidence-based decisions in a setting where we don't have a lot of evidence, right? Um, so I think that the fact that this is a new um, illness, you know, obviously the pandemic is a new thing. There is not a ton of excellent information that we have um, about what happens when kids go back to school. That uncertainty definitely makes the situation harder um, to reason with. You know, I think that the constantly changing plans and the constantly changing information coming out from the province really made the situation and the decision a lot more stressful for parents than it had to be. Um, I mean, I think it was inherently going to be difficult for parents to make their decision, but when the plans change every day and when we don't, really have, con I personally don't have confidence um, that the premier or the education minister um, have a strong grasp on what actually happens in a classroom and kind of the reality uh, of trying to manage public education during a pandemic. Um, and when we don't have that confidence, it makes it even more stressful. Um, so, you know, I think that if some of the recommendations from the Sick Kids Report, for example, had been followed um, a bit more comprehensively, if there were smaller classes, if there were more distancing, um, you know, if there were more outdoor education happening, um, I would have felt even more comfortable with the decision. You know, I often reflect on the fact that when um, I go to a restaurant to go sit on a patio and have a bite to eat, I receive so much more information, both in advance of the reservation in terms of what the restaurant is doing to uh you know, maintain the safety of its patrons. And then when you get there, there's more information and more guidance as to how to safely move through the space and taking information down. And, you know, their websites show you what the space looks like. And, you know, it's just in such stark contrast to the school experience. Yeah, which has just been chaos. Um, I mean, it's been really, really chaotic. It's been really difficult to process the information um, coming out from all different levels of government. And, you know, it's like I joke that I have a PhD and I can't make sense of the emails flying at me. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and but that's reflected. I mean, so we are seeing, I think, a lot of inequality um, really being exacerbated right now. And, you know, the confusing communications coming out, um, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I took a look at some of the data from Toronto, uh, for example, from the TDSB and, you know, the schools in the lowest income areas and where there are the most challenges in the community had the lowest response rate from parents, um, you know, affirmatively making a decision one way or another about whether to send their kids or not. And I think that there's, there's pretty strong evidence out there that there is a communication problem, that there is a communication gap, um, that, you know, parents are not being um, given the information that they need 
to make the decisions in an informed way, you know, and we're not doing a good job communicating with all families. So I completely agree with you. I think it's really disturbing. Um, I think it reveals a lot about the priorities in society um, and it's not good <laughs> what we're learning. Um, you know, and I think that, I mean, there's fundamentally an issue where, you know, businesses make money, businesses pay taxes. Um, there are strong incentives to keep them open and operating, whereas public education costs money, uh, you know, for the government to operate it. And, um, you know, I think that that's really unfortunate. And I think that the rights of children um, and the rights of families have really fallen by the wayside. Um, so I wish there were more that could be done politically to change that. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, in the short term, it's a cost center, right? But in the long term, it's it's where the it's where those tax monies come from. Oh, I completely agree with you. I mean, countries never regret investing in human capital. <laughs> they never regret it. Um, and it's yes, those are the workers who are going to be paying the taxes in the future. You know, do you want them to have high earnings or not? And we know that missing a ton of school or having subpar education, um, you know, it'll depress their earnings. And so I really wish that there were a bigger picture. Um, you know, kind of like analysis of this. And I also wish that there were more involvement from the business community. Um, I mean, again, if, if public education is undermined and eviscerated as a result of the pandemic, um, it, it'll hurt a lot of people. It'll hurt the kids, it'll hurt families, uh, it'll hurt Canada and Ontario, um, but it'll also hurt business and the business community. And so, again, I hope that there can be sort of a broader discussion um, about the importance of public education and how we can really run it and maintain it amidst a pandemic, because I think we're in the coping phase now, um, where, you know, we can't just run away and put our heads in the sand and say, let's hide for a few weeks, or let's hide for a few months, and somehow this is going to be over. I mean, I think this is a, a one to two to potentially three year long disruption, um, and we have to find a way to deal with it. You know, and that factored into my thinking about my own kids, too, um, which is that I was, I was concerned about the impact of them being out of school for so long, when they're at an age you know, that's really critical for learning and it's really critical for them um, to get a good foundation, you know, going forward. I mean, if you can't read or you can't um, do basic math, then you're going to struggle on everything else that comes forward. So especially because their ages, um, you know, I'm really grateful that they were able to go back and they've been back since last Thursday and so far so good. Yeah. One of the things um, I'm struggling with at the moment is, well, I personally, you know, was very challenged by class sizes, just the sort of unwillingness to put a um, smaller cap on class sizes. You know, I often, you know, sort of reoriented my thinking to, well, but if, you know, community, if the rates of community transmission remain low, um, you know, it might be okay. But now with community rates rising, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit more challenged um, with, uh, with the layering of the various measures that are in place. And, you know, I'm, I'm for sure looking to the government to start pulling some levers, whether it's to... Uh, find a new solution to make class sizes smaller, find a new solution around barriers between desks, or whether it's a solution that involves uh, closing down other things to prioritize the public education system. But I, I don't quite feel like we're having that discussion. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, I think that one one thing that we have seen over and over again is um, a, a slowness to respond and, um, you know, really, I feel very slow um, action uh, on the part of the provincial government in particular um, to recognize the changing circumstances and, you know, to, to respond quickly enough to make a difference. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in a situation where you have community spread increasing, there are really only two reasonable options, as you said, which are either increase the um, protections and the safety measures in schools or, you know, take other measures to decrease um, the spread out in the community. And it's, I mean, it's just crazy to me that, um, you know, businesses like bars um, and things like that were, I I mean, I believe even strip clubs (laughs) reopened um, before, you know, uh, some of the facilities that are more oriented toward children. Like, I mean, I would have to fact check this myself, but I do think that um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that strip clubs reopened before playgrounds. Um, And, you know, it's just like, I, I just don't understand the prioritization there because I mean, every single choice that we make um, either adds to our risk or manages it. And, you know, by choosing um, to prioritize businesses really um, over public education, uh, we're increasing the risks associated with having our kids in school. Do you think there's a set of circumstances where uh, in-person learning uh, is stopped and you feel good about the decision? I mean, I think in the very beginning, um, I think in the very beginning of the pandemic, when we knew very little about, you know, how was COVID transmitted, um, what safety measures were effective or not effective. um, You know, I think that that was the right decision because clearly, you know, we needed time and we needed to prevent explosive spread that was going to overwhelm the health system. um, And, you know, we just didn't even have like any information, much less, uh, you know, the operational capacity to try to deliver public education during the pandemic. So, I mean, I do think that that was the right decision. Um, I think that going forward, though, um, we just have to find some way um, to keep educating kids effectively during the pandemic. And I guess that for older grades, um, I mean, for high schoolers and uh, maybe you know, sort of middle schoolers, there could be more effective ways of delivering online learning um, or there are more creative options out there, you know, um, like having very small group uh, sessions with teachers on a more infrequent basis. Um, But I I do think that we have to prioritize um, having the youngest kids in school um, in some way because I just don't, again, if there's evidence out there that you can teach a five or six-year-old how to read and write over the internet, show it to me <laughs> because I sure haven't seen it. And the idea that we would just abandon and mass, um, you know, the instruction of critical skills um, to kids for months or a year or years on end, um, it just seems indefensible to me. Gina, is there anything you haven't shared at this point that, that you want to make sure that people hear about the issues of keeping public schools open for in-person learning during this pandemic? I mean, I would just reiterate the importance of considering all the costs um, and all the benefits of any decision, any course of action. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic, but we do know that keeping, you know, essentially an entire generation of kids 
um, away from effective schooling for months or years on end would be disastrous. Um, I mean, we know that the consequences of that would be very, very serious. Um, and so I think that it's easy, it's easy to focus on the risks that are right in front of us, um, the things that are tangible and where we can see the immediate consequences. No one wants to see someone um, fall ill with COVID, right? No one wants to see deaths um, from the disease. Nobody wants to see, you know, teachers being put at risk um, by poor management decisions. But you know, those are those are the concrete risks right in front of us. Um, but I think we also have to keep in mind the longer term societal consequences. And you know, I really worry. I mean, I worry about the consequences for kids right now. I worry about the way that the decisions being made now are going to exacerbate inequality. Um, I mean, there is every reason to believe that the most vulnerable kids will be hit the hardest by, um, you know, the partial or complete closure of schools um, and by shifts to online learning. And, um, you know, having moved here from the U.S. where there is much more inequality, there is much more inequality in education because education is funded at essentially the neighborhood level. Um, there is much more inequality in society in general. You know, one of the first things I noticed when we came here was that, um, that it's a more equal society. And so I think people have to think very hard about uh, essentially, do you want Canada to look more like the U.S.? <laughs> do you want it to be a more unequal place or not? And um, I mean, if the answer is no, then you know, I think it's really important um, that we try to mitigate the harms and try to, um, you know, try to avoid the pandemic having these devastating impacts for the most vulnerable kids. And it's very, very concerning to me that right now I don't see that happening. Um, I just don't see a serious discussion happening about it. And I don't understand why not. Um, maybe it's just too hard to tackle. Uh, maybe people want to believe that Again, this is not going to make inequality um, vastly worse. Maybe people want to believe that, you know, very young kids who are at home with limited or no adult supervision are going to be able to learn effectively online. Those are all nice things to believe, um, but, you know, they're probably not true. And, um, you know, acknowledging that reality is the first step in making better decisions going forward. Gina, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your very keen insights into what is a difficult issue that, you know, many of us are going through right now. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, really good to talk with you, Jody. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to At Risk. Oh, thank you for having me. So tell me about your family and your children. Yeah, so I'm the proud dad of two wonderful children. Uh, my daughter is nine years old. Uh, she just started grade four. Uh, my son is five years old, and he just started kindergarten. Now, we're in a special situation. Our kids are both on the autism spectrum. Uh, my nine-year-old um, is, I, I suppose, I, I hate this term, but uh, they, they say sort of high-functioning, uh, that she has a, a few difficulties, but... Uh, she, uh, you know, manages to, uh, you know, manages to overcome those and, and is doing quite well. Uh, my five-year-old has more significant challenges. So he is, uh, he's nonverbal, uh, completely nonverbal. Uh, he has a variety of uh, sensory issues. Uh, he tends to, to eat a lot and uh, eat a lot of things he shouldn't. He moves around a bit, but he's, uh, he's a, such a sweet kid. He's, he's full of energy. So this has been uh, 
it's a challenge at uh, any time, you know, raising two kids on the spectrum and then, you know, during a global pandemic, uh, even more so. I can only um, imagine uh, all of the curveballs you've been experiencing, uh, you know, throughout uh, just even thinking about back to school. What did you guys decide in terms of in-person versus online learning? And did you really think you it was much of a choice? It didn't feel like much of a choice. My wife and I both sort of considered uh, the options. We had to weigh them against each other. So the first option was um, sending my daughter back to school. And we'll just focus on my daughter because that was actually, I think, the, the tougher decision. Uh, so for my daughter, we either sent her back to school um, and you know, see how that goes, you know, knowing that there's risks there that uh, the schools might shut down, you know, we might have to scramble, obviously, she could uh, uh, pick up COVID at school, and we would have to sort of figure out how to navigate that. So that was the first option. Uh, The second option would be to homeschool her, um, which would uh, make it less, uh, make it less likely that she would uh, catch COVID, uh, less exposure, but obviously then we would have to homeschool her. Both my wife and I have full-time jobs, but as well, we also th- see an important, you know, socialization, uh, role for our schools. So, um, yes, it would be sort of inconvenient, uh, for us, but I think our larger concern was that she just wouldn't learn as much and she wouldn't be able to, to socialize, uh, with other kids. The third potential option is is have her homeschooled by my parents who are retired. Uh, obviously, that would be, you know, shifting some burden onto onto them, but also some risk that uh, if my, our daughter somehow contracted COVID, that you know my parents are a high risk group. So when we sort of weighed the, those options, the sort of have her homeschooled by the parents. Uh, or by my parents, so her grandparents, you know, that one was off the table. We just saw that as, as too risky. So we decided to send her to school, um, and she's had about three days of school. Uh, she uh, came back uh, with a cold at uh, day four, um, and by the time we were able to get her COVID tested, uh, her school had shut down uh, because one of her classmates had uh, tested uh, positive. So um, you know, we, we chose school because we thought it would be better for her than homeschool. And sure enough, the decision has kind of been made for us, at least in the short run. She's now uh, homeschooling. Yeah, sometimes we, we lose our options, right? Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, is Maggie wearing a mask in the classroom? Yeah, so Maggie's uh, Maggie is uh, wearing a mask. Uh, you know, I do I do wonder how helpful uh, it is. You know, with the, the kids constantly touching the masks and you know taking them on the, the on on and off for a variety of reasons. But yes, all the all, all the kids in in grade four, five, and, and six are expected uh, expected to wear a mask. So going back to your you know decision making process, did you feel like you had all the information you needed to make? an informed decision about uh, about what you were going to do uh, in terms of in-person schooling? Not not entirely, no. And, and, and part of that is just, you know, a lot of this is just sort of acts of God. You know, we don't we don't know if the second wave uh, is is coming. You know, there's there's a lot of, uh, let's say, known unknowns. Um, so, you know, 
you know, if if we thought a, a second wave was very likely, then that would sort of increase our chances or of uh, keeping keeping our daughter home. So there's a bunch of stuff that we couldn't know, and, and nobody could could really forecast. But on top of that, I think there are some things that we weren't told that we could have uh, been told. So first of all, uh, about the availability of testing. You know, it turns out here in Ontario and here in Ottawa, it's been very difficult to get to get a COVID test. Had we known, you know, there would have been day long lines and things like that, that may have changed our, our decision. Um, had we known, uh, you know, what exactly the rules would be around, you know, what, what happened if a classmate tested positive or, or what happened if a child caught cold, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think we, we, we may have made a, a different decision. And, the, and those were policy decisions. Those were, you know, that's not a sort of act of God thing. That those are, are things that our, our health authorities and our governments could have told us earlier or could have planned for earlier um, and, and didn't. So, so yeah, I, I felt like we were operating in an environment of incomplete information. Some of, some of those things are things that nobody could have known, and then others were just we weren't given the, the full information to, to help us make that choice. Yeah, to me, the, the glaring omission was the size of class your child was going into. It just, it's so germane to your decision. Um, the fact that you know, your kid, you, you, you already had to elect and then to find out your, your kid actually had to enter the classroom and, and count, uh, just was, uh, just seemed like a glaring oversight, um, to me. Um, do you know the size of Maggie's classroom while she was in it for the short period of time that <laughs> it was? But everyone was there. Yeah, it was, it was about 25 students. So her, her, her school is running at, a, at about half, uh, capacity, uh, because a lot of uh, a lot of the students selected to to go online, so I guess because of a, a lack of teacher capacity, I, I don't know. Instead of running classes of twelve to fifteen people, um, they have consolidated the classes. So in in their sort of senior, my my daughter's school goes up to grade six. Um, so for the four, fives, and sixes, they're all in split uh, classrooms because they simply don't have enough students to run a full class of everything. So she's in a split four or five, um, which uh, is, is a large class. So yeah, I think that that does change the, the, the metric as well, that you know, had we known that she would have been in a class of uh, two dozen or more students, uh, most of which are in fact in, in grade five, or at least half of which are in grade five, that may have changed our decision as well. And yeah, I think it's a, you know, I, I understand that there are, resource constraints, but it does feel a little bit frustrating that during a pandemic, uh, her school, half the classrooms are empty, that they're not able to better uh, space the students out uh, to, to give them uh, a lower chance of, of catching COVID. And again, it's not an academic fear as you know, one of her classmates uh, has already tested positive and our school is shut down for two weeks. Yeah, I, I view COVID as really you know, in country, in a rich country like Canada, it's really a question of can we allocate our resources more efficiently than the virus can transmit? And, uh, you know, just talking about classroom, like space, so allocations, it seems like we have not 
lived up to uh, to to the metric of of beating the efficiency of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a certain lack of sort of policy, uh, a lack of policy creativity. Uh, you know, we're in a period where the, the weather is still relatively nice. You, you do wonder if they could have kept the kids outside uh, longer and done more sort of outdoor uh, education. Because what we do, you know, we, we again, we have incomplete information about COVID. But one of the, the things that seems certain is that it, it spreads less well outside. It tends to disperse more. Uh, rather than you know going going through the uh, the air systems and, and things like that, so yeah, it, it it does seem again a little bit frustrating that that we haven't been able to sort of pivot uh, and, and use our resources more effectively, and whether that be classroom resources or or testing uh, testing resources. So we had to get our son uh, tested uh, for for COVID, and our local uh, our local testing agency. Um, had people wait out outside line for like six, seven, eight hours. And then, you know, somebody had the bright idea of like, well, why don't we set up a, a reservation system? So the idea is that you go and you're given a time to come back later. Um, you know, and then obviously the next step to that would be, okay, well, let's make that reservation system online so people don't have to show up in the first place. So all of these things could have been done. I mean, they're not, they're, they're not rocket science. You know, I teach a business school. These are all sort of basic operations uh type mechanisms but for whatever reason uh we just weren't able to do do those quickly enough or our governments just weren't able to do those quickly enough um and it's made a bad situation worse so do you have any sense of what those reasons might be i mean i i'm not i i, I don't want to just sit here and speculate but 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 you definitely understand policy making and you know what what good process looks like and when you look at a bad outcome you can often sort of say hmm this looks like you know this typical policy making mistake you know it do 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 you have any insights on on where you think the breakdown might have occurred yeah, it's it's hard to know, and part of the reason why it's, it's been hard to know is there's been somewhat of a lack of, of transparency. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, I try to be uh, somewhat generous. I mean, this is at some level sort of battlefield surgery. You know, we're we're trying to design policies on, on the fly in very difficult um, circumstances, but. You know, it does seem almost that we're sort of overly optimistic about how bad thing, things would get. Um, there seemed to be uh, overly optimistic about the number of people who'd want to get themselves tested. It does seem to be a, a disconnect where you, the, you know, the schools require a, a test if, if a kid you know, comes home with the sniffles or come home with a cold. And there seemed to just be a lack of anticipation of how many kids were going to catch colds and, you know, need need to get a COVID test as sort of a, a, a you know, a permission slip to go back to class. Um, and again, that seems strange to me because, again, as a parent of, of two young kids, I know, you know, first week of school, they almost always come back with a cold. So I do hope that out of all of this, there is a post-mortem analysis that takes place and, and figures out, okay, like what specifically uh, went wrong in September and why couldn't our governments have anticipated things that seem fairly obvious to most parents that, you know, hey, if you're going to require a test, if your kid has a cold, you're going to require them to get a COVID test, then the demand for COVID tests is going to shoot up 
rapidly as soon as as soon as school starts. You you would think that that would be something that would be anticipated. Everybody's trying hard, and everybody was you know kind of focused on their areas. But I I feel like there is also we lack that kind of thirty thousand foot view where we said oh you know where we asked ourselves just from a communications point of view. Number one, after you know we've told people to stay home, we've uh, you know, dropped metaphorical bombs on businesses. Um, we haven't let some businesses ever reopen, like water parks, for example. Um, and then we're going to pivot to kind of downplay the risk to children. Meanwhile, we've had this whole, you know, kind of communication around how we're all in this together. And, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And we also kind of blew up all the all the messaging around numbers so 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 we're putting kids you know in these classes of 24 while admonishing you know um university aged young people about gathering together in too large a numbers um while there's a lot going on here i do feel we have suffered a real breakdown in thinking about how messages land in people's ears rather than how they kind of look isolated on a, on a piece of paper. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Uh, I do think in this, uh, this whole scenario, I, I, I think we needed more sociologists and, and psychologists, um, you know, crafting the, those messages. A lot of the messages uh, that that come out from again either governments or public health agencies or so on again you know read like they're they're written by epidemiologists um, and it's not sort of resonating uh, with the general public the messages have been incredibly confusing and it's not it's not necessarily meeting people where where they are um, and I think the the point you make about you know all, all in this being together um, I think is a crucial one that you know that you sort of build up these messages of solidarity and trying to do, do the right thing, control spread. Uh, and then later on going, well, no, no, don't, you know, don't go, don't go get a test. We don't need you to get a test. And people were thinking, well, I was, I was getting a test to protect others, right? Like I, I want to know if I have COVID because if I do, I then, you know, I'll, I'll stay home and, and not infect others. And I certainly, you know, won't, won't visit grandma and grandpa. So yeah, I do think this has been lost, and I, and I, and I can see how it can happen uh, in any kind of emergency or pandemic that uh, your focus really narrows and you start, you know, focusing on the individual trees and you, you know, I'm gonna, you mix a lot of metaphors here, but, you know, you start trying to put out individual fires and you lose sight of the bigger picture. You lose sight of what uh, you're trying to accomplish and the messages that, that, that you're giving to people. So you've got parents who are just sort of completely confused about what they're supposed to do. Um, so again, an example, my, my five-year-old uh, who just started kindergarten, he, he also got a cold and we, we got a COVID test for him. And, and fortunately, it, fortunately it, it turned out negative and he was going to go back to school. But just things of uh, letting us know, like, how do we actually communicate the test results to the school? Where do we actually go uh, for test, you know, to, to actually get our test results back. Um, you know, we were, we were told, uh, that there was, uh, you know, a special app you could download. I could download it and, you know, his results, uh, didn't show up there right away. 
And then somebody suggested, well, just go to the ministry website and, and put in his health card information. And we did that. And his test results were already there. So you, you have this thing where it's like parents don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They're really just sort of confused and they're getting mixed messages. And all of that was preventable uh, had someone to take that 30,000 foot approach that, that, that you advocated for and say, okay, like, let's, let's look at the big picture and let's make sure that uh, we're meeting people where they are and giving people messages that they can understand so they're better informed and, and can make uh, make more informed decisions. So how do we get this back on the rails? Like, is there, you know, from from a policy point of view, do, is, do we need to do some sort of interim review like uh, has been entertained in long-term care, um, but it hasn't really achieved liftoff yet um is there some sort of like policy making sprint that you know um we should be bringing people into what how how do we how do we get better yeah well i i think first of all having somebody who's focused on that uh thirty thousand foot like having getting people together and going okay you know what our messaging just isn't working and maybe our messengers aren't aren't uh working so can we get somebody in there um, who can communicate with people. So, so having a whole sort of communications arm to this, I think is incredibly vital. Um, there was a, a release that came out today. Um, I'm not sure if it's by public health agency or, or the Ontario government, but it was basically giving uh, out the, the, the points about who is supposed to be tested and who is not supposed to be tested. And there's like a bullet pointed list, but it's not clear from the list that whether or not you have to meet all the conditions or just one of the conditions in order to get tested. You know, is it an and or an or? It's not clear from that. So that to me suggests that there is a role here to have somebody um, do, first of all, a communication role. Uh, and then sort of a steam, you know, a, a streamlining role of, you know, letting people know where to get their tests. So they almost, you know, in my view, have to do some kind of like communications red team of, okay, let's, let's suppose I'm a parent and I don't know much about anything. Uh, how easy is it for me to get information? Uh, how is, easy is it for me to, to go where the tests are? You know, so, you know, almost sort of role play and have a group of individuals, you know, be just an average parent from Ottawa or London, Ontario or Whaling Corners or, or wherever, um, just go through the system and, and, and find those stumbling blocks and have somebody fix it, I think would go a long way. It's like, yes, you need to have more testing and you need to have smaller class sizes and you need to get all these big things right. But it feels to me like there's a lot of little things that they could get right uh, that would be much lighter lifts for them. Is there anything uh, you'd like to share that you haven't shared yet? Uh, well, I, I think overall, uh, you know, I I do worry about the long term uh, consequences of, of what this uh, what this means uh, for our kids. Um, so I think we, you know, again, this is the thirty thousand feet level. I think we also need to focus on the the step after this. We're going to have a lot of kids that missed a lot of education. We're going to have a lot of kids that found this whole scenario fairly traumatic. You know, I, I do worry that we're we're entering into uh, a, a mental health crisis coming out of this. So, as we start to redesign these systems, I would like to see us not only again just focus on the here and now, uh, but focus on okay, how can we repair the damage that this has caused again to our economy, to our mental health, uh, to our kids' education, and so on. 
coming out of this rather than just, you know, when we get out of it going, well, I'm glad that's over. Um, there's still going to be more work to be done. Mike Moffat, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your family story and your public policy insights. Well, thank you for having me.